0: So one of the things I really appreciate about the Bible is it doesn't cover over the messy stuff of life. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It tells things and describes life just as it is. Uh, it, 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 it describes the tough things that people go through, the tragedies that people experience, and also the sin uh, that, that this world uh, has. And so uh, the Bible doesn't leave us there. We also find within the Bible hope and the promise of a good future, even in the midst of present mess. And so that's what this book is about, the book of Esther. And so as we've been journeying through the book of Esther, we've been noticing just tragedies, hardships, and sins in these characters' lives. We've read about Esther and Mordecai. Esther lost her parents at a very young age. She lived away from her homeland. And lived under the rule of an egotistical uh, king. Not only that, she was taken into his harem, and uh, taken from her uh, her um, cousin who who acted as a parent towards her, Mordecai. And so there was just a lot of hardship, suffering, tragedy, and sin in this story. But, but it doesn't end there. Maybe in our lives we find. that that our lives are identified and defined by a lot of tragedy and sin. And I want to encourage us that uh, maybe we feel stuck right now, we feel guilt or shame or just feel like we're super discouraged during this time and we don't have hope. This book is all about giving hope to the discouraged and that even in the toughest of times God is not absent in the tragedies and in the sin. God is not removed. He's working behind the scenes to rescue his people. Let's dive right in in Esther chapter two, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together, the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, So Esther is queen right now. And Mordecai is probably working for the government as he's sitting by the king's gate. He hears about an assassination attempt by two of the king's eunuchs. He tells Esther about it. Esther notifies the king. It's investigated. And these two eunuchs are are caught and they're hanged. They're hanged. And so what we would expect next is that Mordecai should be honored the king there should be some sort of promotion some sort of reward for saving the king's life because not only does he do so but Esther tells about this plot in the name of Mordecai and it's also recorded in the chronicles the book of the chronicles in the presence of the king so the author is leading us to expect that Mordecai should be honored for what he did because isn't that how it's supposed to be, right? If you do well in the workplace, shouldn't we be promoted? If we do good at school, shouldn't we be given the credit that we deserve? But let's read on. Verse one, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid a homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So Mordecai doesn't get the promotion. In fact, Haman, the Agagite, Gets the promotion that's just a cool uh, name to say agagite that just sounds like a villain doesn't it just like someone from a Marvel uh, movie uh, villain character him the agagite and he is a he's a villain right and and so this is what happens the person that should have got promoted didn't get promoted but someone else a villain was the one that got honored and isn't that life a lot of the time you put in all the hard work uh, for that project at the workplace and you're the one that deserves a promotion you're the one that deserves a raise or at least the credit but the boss acknowledges the other guy not you or maybe in school if you're in school now or maybe Maybe this happened to you when you were in school where you were in a school project and you're the one working diligently and, and trying to do your part. And there's always that one group member that they think their job in the group is to be the joker, not to be the worker. And at the end of the project, the teacher and the classmates acknowledge that person and not you. Right? That's life. Right? Things at times are just not fair. It's not right. And so here, Mordecai should have been the one that got promoted, but it was Haman. And so Mordecai decides not to bow to Haman, even though the government commanded him to. Now, this bowing probably wasn't one of worship. Mordecai wasn't being asked to worship Haman, but it's more a sign of respect, the way that we would salute someone in a high rank or the way in some cultures we would bow to someone to show them honor and Mordecai decides I'm not gonna do it I'm not gonna bow so let's let's go ahead and read on then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai why do you transgress the king's command and when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now, why doesn't he bow? Why doesn't Mordecai bow? Now he does reveal his identity finally—that he's a Jew. But there's no just clear reason why is Haman, uh, why is Mordecai not bowing? It's very interesting to note where Mordecai kind of draws the line when it comes to when he'll stand up for something, because you would think, and I would think that. Mordecai would have stood up earlier when his adopted daughter, his cousin Esther, was being taken into the king's harem. That would have been the time for Mordecai to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. I'm going to take my cousin and we're going to run away. or I'm going to defend her from uh, her being taken into the king's harem. But he doesn't do that. He just lets that slide. But when it comes to bowing to Haman, that's when he draws a line. You know, maybe for, uh, for some of us, we have family members or friends who are maybe kind of passive and really chill, and yet there are certain social issues or political issues or or certain things where where they get super vocal, and you're like, "Whoa, where did this passion come from?" Uh, I see where you're really passionate now because you're being vocal here on social media or whatnot. Uh, but it's kind of like that here, where where we're getting to see where Mordecai draws the line as far as his convictions and this infuriates Haman. Here's a question is if Mordecai just simply honored Haman and bowed to him would that had stopped Haman from planning to annihilate all of the Jews? And we don't know but that's just kind of a, a question to throw out there. Let's read on. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month to the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So things get really, really bad. Haman doesn't want to destroy just mordecai he wants to destroy all the mordecai's people the jews men women and children and so they cast lots in the first uh, month of the year nisan now the interesting thing about casting lots is it's little clay cubes these lots like dice are dice and inscribed on these clay cubes are are dots and, and and inscriptions. But when they cast their their, their, their lots, it wasn't to gamble, but it was a way of divination. So they would seek the guidance of the gods through casting of lots. And so that's what they were doing right now on the first month of Nisan. And so here we see uh, things are getting really bad. And, and, and the interesting thing is the month that they cast lots was the same month as Passover, when the Jews would celebrate their deliverance by God from uh, Pharaoh. So let's read on. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not in to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials and all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language it was written in the name of king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews young and old women and children in one day the thirteenth day of the twelfth month which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in susa the citadel and the king and haman sat down to drink but the city of susa was thrown into confusion so the king goes along with haman's plan and haman he's super sneaky right he doesn't say the identity of the people He doesn't say it's the Jews. He uh, appeals to the king that he would make a profit, 10,000 talents of silver. So in a sense, he's saying, hey, king, I, I know we just went to war with Greece and we lost that war. Our treasuries are depleted, but let me help you get a profit. Let me help you build up your bank account again after this humiliating loss. Well, the historian Herodotus, he recorded that in the Persian Empire under Xerxes's father, Darius, they would bring in 14,500 talents of silver a year, a year. And so um, Haman's offer to give 10,000 talents of silver, which is 300, about 300 tons of silver, makes up a pretty good amount of the yearly income of the empire. That's a lot. That's a lot of silver. And so they agree on the deal. Xerxes is pretty much, hey, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. Right? Maybe some of us have bosses or teachers that are like that. Hey, you want to do it? Go ahead and, and, and do it. Doesn't ask a lot of questions because, hey, he, he's getting uh, the profit from it. He's taking advantage from it. So the edict was written on the 13th day of, of the first month. Which, the ironic thing, is that 13th day fell on the eve of Passover. Passover. Right, so can you imagine, right, being a Jew, living in this empire, uh, and, right, this span from North Africa all the way to modern-day Pakistan, that included the Jews who were living in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. So, hearing that during this time of Passover, hearing that, um, that, that you... Uh, Your family would be wiped out and all of your possessions uh, taken. So here they are celebrating Passover, a time where God miraculously delivered your people out of Egypt, out of Egypt. And now you're being threatened by a new empire, by the Persian Empire. And so it's almost as if God was, was reminding the people, hey, just as I saved your ancestors from Pharaoh, You need to trust me that I will save you from the hand of the Persian Empire. Now these events are like arrows, like arrows pointing us forward to another event on Passover week. A few hundred years later, Jesus would be arrested and would be crucified on Passover weekend, showing that the freedom that is needed is not from Egypt, it's not ultimately from the Persian empire, but the freedom that we all truly need is the freedom from our sin and the freedom uh, from the consequences uh, from our sin, eternal punishment. And so have we trusted in Jesus as our savior and our king to rescue us, from our sin. So the whole city of Susa, right, is is just in chaos. And I you can mean, I can't even imagine what was going on in the city. Right? Imagine finding out that you and all those of your ethnicity will be annihilated, including your family. Or imagine if you had friends, family or you had you had friends or neighbors of a certain ethnicity and you found out that they're going to be killed. That would be just crazy, and, and I can't imagine what was going on in this city. But let's just step back and look at kind of the big picture of what's going on. So in, in the story of the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, way back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, a lot of questions about life get answered in the book of, of Genesis. Uh, humanity chose to rebel against God, to live autonomously from God as our own kings and queens. And so the result of that was sin entering into the world, death entering into the world, and and tragedies and suffering because humanity has chosen to rebel against God and live apart from his good rule. And that is deserving of, of, of eternal punishment because it is sinning against an eternal God. But God didn't leave us in this state because the first man and woman, they were deceived by Satan, the serpent. And God promised way back in Genesis 3 that God would deal with uh, with Satan, with the serpent. Let's read Genesis 3.15 and this promise that is given to humanity. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to the serpent. And then, then God promises, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head heal God promises that that he will bring through the descendants of humanity someone to come who will defeat Satan by bruising his head by giving him a death blow now we understand that to be Jesus who defeated Satan sin and death on the cross and will ultimately defeat Satan when Jesus returns when he returns. And so if we look at the big picture here, right, God promised the first humans that he would bring a deliverer through their line. Later on in the story, God promises that this deliverer will come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would come from the tribe of Judah. Later on in the story, God promises that this, this savior figure would come through David's descendants. And so if Haman got his wish, if Haman annihilated all of the Jewish people, that would mean that the savior, the, the one who defeats Satan, wouldn't be able to come because he was promised to come through the Jewish line. And so we see that this is just bigger than what's happening in Esther's time, but this, is, this affects all humans throughout history. And so um, that's the big picture. So as we read this story, how can we live in response to what we just read? Well, here's the first thing that we can respond to, is we can trust that God uses even the tragedies in our lives for his good purposes, if we are a follower of, of, of Jesus. Right, so think about the tragedies in this story so far. So Esther loses her, her, her parents. At a young age, Esther is taken into the king's harem, right? This is not a princess story, but this is the king abusing his authority to get what he wants. This is a tragedy. The Jews are potentially going to be wiped out. This is horrifying, horrifying. And so God is not absent in this circumstance, even though in this book, the name of God or Lord is never mentioned. God is working behind the scenes to save his people, to rescue those who trust in him. Now, he does, he does it in a, in a peculiar way, doesn't he? He doesn't do it through miracles. He doesn't part any oceans. He doesn't multiply bread and fish. He does it in the normal, everyday circumstances of life. And a lot of times, that's the way that God works. May not, we may not be able to see it, and I'm sure Esther could not see what God was doing in raising her up to be queen, but yet God was still accomplishing his purposes. We don't see. A lot of times in our tragedies, in our hardships, we don't see uh, what God is doing because our sight is so limited. We don't see the future, and so we're unable to to identify at times whether something was was. Uh, a good thing or, or, or a bad thing, because we're so limited in, uh, in our sight. It reminds me of this uh, Chinese uh, fable of a a man who owned a horse. That horse ran away from him. And so his neighbor said, oh, that's just a bad thing, your horse ran away. And he's like, well, maybe. The horse comes back to him and brings back seven other wild horses. And so his neighbors say, wow, that's such good luck. You got eight horses now. The man says, maybe. Well, his son was trying to uh, ride one of those wild horses. The horse uh, kicks him off. The son ends up breaking his leg. The neighbor comes to the man and says, "Uh, that's not very lucky. Look at your son, broken leg. The man says, "Mm, maybe. Later on, the, the, uh, the army comes and enlists all the young men to fight in war. They go to the young son. Or, or the man's son, and they don't choose him because of his broken leg. The neighbor comes to the man and says, wow, man, you're so lucky. Uh, your son was not taken to go off into war. And the man says, well, maybe. The whole point of that fable is is our sight is so limited. We're, in that one series of events, right? they're unable to, to decide if something was a good thing, Or a bad thing and so in our circumstances our sight is so limited something that seems just so so horrible and it could very well be super horrible we don't know of any good outcomes uh, because we have limited sight but we have a God who does see the big picture who does know the outcome and what he promises to all who trust in Jesus he promises that he works all things together for good even the tragedies. Uh, let's read Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God promises that he works together all things for good for those who love him. Now, it's important to take note that, um, He's not saying everything that happens to us is good. There are things in our life that's wrong and horrible and tragic. It's not good. But what God promises is that he uses even the mess for his good purposes. The Bible is it doesn't gloss over just the hardships and the mess of life. But what God promises is that even in that mess, God is, is purposeful. And what is that good? Well, verse 29 tells us what that good is because it's important to define it. That good is to be made more like Jesus. God created humans to reflect him on this earth. And so Jesus, as the perfect human, perfectly reflects who God is. Well, he is God and he perfectly reflects uh, God uh, because he is perfect and so what god is doing is he's not making us god but he is making us more like jesus in our compassion in our love and in our care for others so he uses the circumstances in our lives the tragedies in our lives even those horrible things to shape us to be more like jesus and what that means is that God is not wasting any of our hurts if you are a follower of Jesus. None of your pain and my pain is meaningless, but it has purpose. And that's good news. The second thing from this story is we can trust that God can use even our sins and the sins of others to accomplish his good purposes. This story is marked by a lot of different sins, right? We have Xerxes. He should not have sent his wife away, Vashti. He should have honored her should have honored her. He should have not taken men and women uh, into his empire and and abused them. He should have not done that. But not just uh, Xerxes, Haman. Haman, well, he shouldn't have been Haman. Uh, He shouldn't have uh, uh, planned and plotted this annihilation of all the Jewish people. Mordecai and Esther, they should not have compromised their faith. They should not have hidden their identity. They probably should have left to Jerusalem uh, because God had promised that that he would bring his people back into their land and rebuild their temple and their city. They should have went. Mordecai also, he should have been promoted. Yet through all the sins that were committed and all the sins that were committed against, God was working in the midst of it all. God used the removal of Queen Vashti in order to bring Esther in. God used even the compromising of Mordecai and Esther by them staying in Persia in order to save his people. God used Haman and his wicked plan in order to show God's people that God rescues them and he will punish evildoers, which we'll read later on. God even used the fact that Mordecai did not get promoted right away because later on as we read, that's going to play a factor in, in God's rescuing his people. God uses the sins of others to accomplish his good purposes. Just like this story, our lives are marked by sin, isn't it? Sins that either were committed against us or sins that we committed. Now, there's a important, some important things to take note when we think about God's sovereignty over sin. We have to remember, and we have to that we cannot use God's sovereignty over sin as an excuse for our shortcomings. If we fail an exam at school, or if we receive the bad review at the workplace, we can't just say, "Well, God's sovereignty; God's in control." Oh well. Um, but we have to look at and investigate what are the reasons behind that performance, and then we should. Um, examine our lives and ask uh, the Holy Spirit uh, for help to grow in these areas. So we shouldn't use the sovereignty of God to disregard our shortcomings. Secondly, is we should not use the sovereignty of God uh, to live passive lives, to live uh, passive lives. We shouldn't think, oh, because God is in control. I don't need to care for my family because God's got it, right? Or because God is in control, I don't need to put that much work into my schoolwork, it's not greeted anyway. I don't need to do that hard at the workplace because hey, you know, God's God's gonna do what God's gonna do, so it means I don't have to do really anything. No, that that's a wrong view of the sovereignty of God. Because God is in control, that frees us to live active lives where we can serve others with the best of our abilities in the home and in the workplace and in the the community, knowing that God uh, will accomplish his purposes as we um, promote uh, human flourishing. So it frees us to serve actively rather than to sit back passively. The third thing about God's sovereignty is we have to be, uh, be aware uh, not to use God's sovereignty uh, to make excuses for our sinful actions and decisions that hurt other people. See, God may use the sins that we commit against other people, but he will also hold us accountable for our sinful decisions and actions. So we just have to be aware that we don't um, uh, think wrongly about God's sovereignty. But here's the good news, is that we we don't need to be defined by and be stuck in our sins or the sins that others committed against us. So maybe we've experienced being cheated in the workplace. Uh, Like Mordecai, right? We we deserve to be uh, promoted or given that raise or acknowledged, but we weren't. We weren't, someone else got it and they didn't deserve it. Or maybe we were lied to by a spouse or by a friend. We were hurt by, by a parent maybe who walked out on us as when we were young children. Or maybe like those in the Persian Empire, right? we experienced abuse, abuse from the hands of others. And maybe we, we've allowed these tragedies, these hurts, these sins that were committed against us to define who we are and how we view the world. And we feel stuck. We feel like we can't see past these things that were done uh, to us. Uh, we live in a broken world. A world filled with suffering and evil. And the good news is that, is that God, uh, his view on us, if we're in Jesus, his view doesn't change. We are children of God. We're not defined by what we do. But we're defined by the family we are in in the family of God. Our identity is not defined by the past and the wrongs that were done to us, but it's defined by our Father who calls us His child. Maybe this morning you're defining yourself by the tragedies of your life, and that's how you view yourself, and that's who you think you are. I want to encourage you to believe the words of the Bible. 1 John 3.1. Believe these words. Here, here, here's what it says. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are receive those words and believe those words. If you are in Jesus, you are a child of God. That is who you are. That is your identity. You are in his family forever. And so rest in that. Identify with that. Now, me for some of us, we're dealing uh, not with sin done against us, but with sin we committed to other people. and We're racked with guilt. We were the ones that hurt that family member. We were the ones who cheated and got caught at the workplace. We're the ones hiding certain scandals to our closest family members and friends. And we wonder, will God forgive me? Will God accept me? Will God still come through in my life? And the good news is that he, he can, he does, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your King. See, the good news is God is a God who forgives. See, King Xerxes, he used his power to control people and to abuse them. Jesus used his power to save all those who would come to him for forgiveness and to bow to him as their king xerxes he used his power and sent haman to kill a people that he didn't even know god the father sent god the son to save a people from the punishment for their sins xerxes was willing to take the lives of others to benefit his own life jesus gave his life on the cross so that we would receive the benefits of life with him forever and so what this means for us is not only are we a child of God in Jesus, but we're forgiven. We're forgiven. We don't have to live a life racked with guilt. We don't have to define our life by our past sins. But rather, we can walk freely knowing that when God looks at us, he sees his child, his redeemed child, and he fully receives us into his family now one of the ways that we remember this this good news and respond to it is by taking communion see Xerxes he gave himself over to pleasure and indulgence for himself but Jesus gave his body shed his blood on the cross for us so I want to encourage you that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus to take communion with us I want to encourage you to take the bread or the cracker uh, representing God's body and then take the juice of the wine representing his shed blood on the cross to eat to drink, and to be renewed in God's grace. A second way you can respond to the good news of Jesus is, is through giving. And you can do that by going online, harbordnewwanted.org, and cl- clicking the Give button. So I want to encourage us now that we can respond to the good news of God, that He is working in our lives, even through the mess, even through the tragedy, and God is accomplishing His good purposes, and so we can have hope, and we can have his peace and joy, even during a time that we're living in. Let's pray and respond to the good news of Jesus. Father, we thank you that even in times of uncertainty, in times of evil, you're not absent. You haven't taken your hands off the steering wheel, but you're working a lot of times behind the scenes to accomplish your good purposes. Help us to believe you and then to respond appropriately to this good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.